0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's AAAS.org/join. This is the Science podcast for June 23rd, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, taking the hunt for dark energy out to space. Staff writer Daniel Clary joins me to discuss a new space-based telescope called Euclid, set to launch next month. Euclid will kick off a new phase in the search for dark energy. This is the mysterious force that is accelerating the expansion of the universe. Next up, snakes reveal a new way to pattern the body. Researcher Anathasia Dika is here to talk about her Science Advances paper on the novel way snakes organize their scales during development and what it means for other skin appendages like feathers and fur. Now we have staff news writer Daniel Clary. He's here to talk about a launch planned for next month of a new European space telescope called Euclid and a hunt for dark energy. Hi, Dan. Hi. So another space telescope. This is exciting.
1: (laughs) Yes, I know. There seems to be a flood of them at the moment.
0: How is this space telescope, the Euclid, different from maybe the more famous ones, Hubble or JWST?
1: First of all, it's a survey telescope, so it has a very wide field of view. And so you can take in a lot of the sky in a single image, whereas Hubble and uh, JWST have very, very narrow focus because they want to see as far and see as much detail as possible. But this one isn't all about detail. It's about getting as much information as it can. And it has a very, very particular purpose, which is to try and understand what dark energy is.
0: This is part of kind of a large project that's looking for dark energy in the universe. Now, can you remind us what dark energy is?
1: Yeah, sure. It was sort of intuited that it was there about, you know, 30 years ago, because, you know, the universe we know is expanding because of uh, the momentum given to it by the Big Bang. So everything is flying apart. And, Astronomers had always assumed that gravity, which pulls things together, would be slowing down that expansion. And uh, in the 1990s, people sought to measure that expansion, to confirm it. And what they found was that the expansion was speeding up, not slowing down. So there is some force that is pushing all of the galaxies and stars and everything in the universe apart from each other so that the expansion is getting faster. And they have no idea what that is. So it's just given the title of dark energy since uh, its nature is unknown.
0: Hmm. And it makes up a large part of the energy in the universe.
1: Yes, that's right. So it originated in a time right close to the Big Bang when uh, everything was bunched together and it was just a big soup of particles and energy. And then suddenly it cooled to a degree where the particles coalesced into atoms. The photons that were bouncing around were suddenly released and they could fly free. And that radiation that was released at that moment is now microwave wavelength and it's known as the uh, cosmic microwave background. But people could learn all sorts of things about the very early universe by looking at that radiation. And they looked at the patterns in that radiation and concluded that the universe as a whole must be flat. So it has no curvature, overall curvature.
0: Oh, this is the part where it gets really crazy. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I know. It's uh, hard to imagine the universe being curved or flat. But the conclusion was that it had to be flat. And for it to be flat, it needs a certain amount of matter and energy, those considered together, inside it to make it flat. And what we can see, which is all the galaxies and planets and stars and everything, and the dark matter associated with galaxies, that didn't make up enough stuff to make the universe flat. And so dark energy, which is the stuff that is accelerating the expansion, must make up the rest. And so the conclusion was that 70% of the stuff in the universe is dark energy.
0: Okay, let's circle back to <laughs> dark energy. So we talked a little bit about detecting its presence through the cosmic microwave background, CMB. There have been other measures, other phenomena that confirm that there is more Energy in the universe than we can detect through normal means. So, this is, for example, with the Nobel Prize in 2011, went to a group that looked at this using supernova.
1: There were two teams principally working on this who tried to measure the rate of expansion of the universe. What they found was that the expansion rate of the universe in the late universe, you know, near the present time, was faster than it was early on. So, you know, the expansion is getting faster. And that was uh, the first conclusive evidence that uh, this phenomenon was happening. And, you know, they've continued to work those teams and gather more and more supernovae and it just gets more and more... um...
0: Convincing?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Okay, so what do we need Euclid for? What is a space telescope going to add to our understanding of dark energy?
1: astronomers like to check everything uh, and uh, as good scientists so they have looked for other ways of measuring the expansion of the universe and one way of doing it is by looking at how clusters of galaxies clump together galaxies are separated by huge distances but they still exert gravity on each other and so they should pull together into clusters, and then clusters should get smaller because the gravity is pulling them together. But they have found that they're not clustering as much as they would have expected. And so that measurement of galaxy clustering is another way of measuring the expansion of the universe, so the effect of dark energy. There's other ways too. The, the principal one that Euclid is going to use is called weak gravitational lensing. They're looking at images of very distant galaxies and looking at their shape, whether they the image is a true image or whether it's distorted, because on its travels from that galaxy to the telescope, it passes by lots of other large conglomerations of mass like other galaxies or clusters of galaxies or clumps of dark matter. And that distorts the path of the light and so distorts the image of the distant galaxy. So researchers can do that on a lot of galaxies, thousands and thousands of them, and get a sort of statistical measure on how Clumped together, these large masses are all over the universe that are distorting the light of distant galaxies. And that's another way of measuring the sort of clumpiness of matter that gravity should be pulling together, but dark energy is pushing apart. So those two forces are working against each other.
0: Yeah. So this is a way of kind of taking a bunch of local measures of what dark energy is doing rather than looking at it at this history of the universe
1: scale. The measurements from the cosmic microwave background are telling us what was happening in the first half a billion years of the universe's life. That's when the universe was very young. You know, it's now 13 and a half billion years old. It's easy for us to look at things that are close to where we are now, so not in the distant past, but there's a gap in the middle. And that's what Euclid wants to be able to look at this huge expanse of time between things that are near to us and oh. those very, very early times that are probed by the cosmic microwave background.
0: So, after Euclid takes all this data, what can we expect to hear from them? Like, what kind of refinement will this give us about dark energy?
1: People have been doing these sort of measurements that I've been describing. But mostly it's been done from the ground, and the telescopes on the ground can only see so far into the past. So they can see back about 3 billion years. Euclid should be able to see back 10 billion years. So that's three quarters of the history of the universe. They're covering a lot of ground that hasn't been tested before to see what the effect of dark energy is during that whole period. What astronomers want to know is... Was this acceleration always the same? Right. Was it always pushing with the same impetus all through the history of the universe? Or has it changed? And that might guide them to what is causing it, if they can see that it changes over time. And that's what they're hoping for.
0: Yeah. So I can just imagine a graph of dark energy's behavior changing over 13 billion years or not, right? It's not what we we don't know.
1: That's right. Yeah, we don't know at the moment because we're only measuring the last little bit near us or the very, very early bit. And so we need to probe that gap in the middle to see what it was doing during that long period.
0: How long will it take to do the kinds of measurements we're talking about, you know, looking back 11 billion years or 10 billion years and also looking at a huge swath of the sky?
1: Euclid's survey is going to take six years. So they're going to Uh, measure the positions of, I think, a billion galaxies. Wow. And also take images of, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, I think, of galaxies. And they're going to do this over six years. After that, it'll take some time to process this huge amount of data. You know, it's just a colossal project. But after a couple of years, they should get an inkling of what the results might be. So they'll get a taster. At the moment, people can measure the expansion rate and how it's accelerating to about 10% accuracy. With Euclid, they hope eventually to get to less than 1%. They'll be able to say with more certainty that it does vary with time or they'll be able to say with quite a lot of certainty it doesn't vary and it is just a constant pressure which is unchanging through the history of the universe.
0: Say we measure one of those things, one of those things turns out to be true. What are the options like theoretically that we're picking through here? So what does it mean if it is a consistent force or if it did change over time?
1: Well, there are various models that people are putting forward to explain dark energy. The default one that is in the current standard model of cosmology is that it's a constant force. This is just a simple tweak of uh, general relativity, which is Einstein's theory of gravity, that just inserts a bit of energy into empty space, which is constant. Hence, it's called the cosmological constant. So essentially, every cubic meter of uh, empty space has some energy of its own. And if it expands to two cubic meters, It has the same energy. It never dilutes, no matter how big the universe grows, which is bizarre in itself. We don't know where that energy is coming from. But at the moment, all of the results point to that, that it's just a constant force. If we find that it changes over time, then it can't be that. It must be something different. So that's what cosmologists are hoping for. (laughs) Of course. Because then (laughs) they're into all sorts of interesting territory and they can maybe find out where that energy is coming from. And also it might help with the explanation of what dark matter is as well. It has the potential to answer all sorts of cosmological questions, But we have to do the measurement first, and then we'll know whether we need to maybe revise general relativity. That's one possibility. Or an alternative is that there is a new force in the universe. So, you know, we know of four forces, uh, you know, gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear force. Those are the four. But maybe there is another one that only acts over very, very great distances. That's a possibility, but we don't have the data to support it yet.
0: Now, one thing you mentioned in your story is that this actually could be gravity just doing things at a scale that we're not used to looking at. Is that still possible?
1: Yes. A lot of people think that general relativity is incomplete. There must be uh, more complexity to it. General relativity has been tested with extreme precision in all sorts of scenarios, and it always passes these tests. But we've not tested it on a universal scale on the scale of the whole universe and maybe it doesn't work on that scale and something else is happening and we have to make some refinement to it to explain why it's causing an expansion on those sort of scales
0: yeah okay well dan what is the likelihood that this data from euclid and its you know sister projects is going to solve this question of dark energy
1: people are very optimistic
0: yeah for sure.
1: You know, because we're going from 10% accuracy, which is not very good, to less than 1%, which is a lot more precise. And that may reveal some quirks that they then have to explain. So that might lead them down the right path in, you know, five or 10 years. But others think that it may take longer to understand the data that they're going to get, and it may require uh, more work over a longer time. Sometimes these things, yeah, take a long time.
0: Just getting started. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. My pleasure. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for a slithery segment with Anastasia Dika and what we can learn from scaleless snakes. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers, and it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of a solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. I'm in the camp of people who think snakes are really cool, but I know there's a lot of Not haters necessarily, but people who are afraid of them or don't really want to know much about them for whatever reason. But if you are ever able to look up close at a snake, you kind of see that they're almost like perfectly patterned. They just have such precise patterns on their back where their hexagonal scales kind of overlay each other. And then on their bellies, they have these like flat, long scales that are like Venetian blinds. They overlap each other. It's all very tidy. Very regular. And how this patterning of scales comes to be is really not well understood. Athanasia Sika is here to discuss her work in Science Advances on how scale patterning might be arising in snakes. Hi, welcome to the Science Podcast.
2: Hello, Sarah. Thank you for having
0: me here. Sure. I I guess I should ask how, how do you feel about snakes? Well,
2: I have to say that the first time I met one, I was not very comfortable. Yeah. But uh, it is amazing to work with these animals because exactly we know very little things, not only about the patterning, but in general for their biology. So every day I'm learning something new and finding something new that just amazes me and want to continue.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more broadly to start with about patterning mechanisms. So there are two main ways animals get things like stripes and polka dots. And all these different scales and feather positions. Can you talk a little bit about one of the main mechanisms that was actually? It's actually named after Alan Turing.
2: Most of the skin appendages they are organized based on the reaction diffusion system that was first introduced by Turing, who obviously didn't have that exact uh, <laughs> uh, example in mind. But it is amazing in how many different systems we see it uh, applied. Yeah. So it is the interaction of molecules that we call an activator and inhibitor.
0: This is definitely, you know, something that people should go out and look up online for little videos. They're just great examples of how an activator and inhibitor work together in many, many different systems to create all these amazing patterns.
2: Exactly. So it has been used to describe, for example, how the stripes form on different types of fish or the spots of the leopard and many different examples in the animal uh, kingdom.
0: And then there's another way that organisms self-organize, and this has more to do with the position, like where things are in relation to each other.
2: So Walpert's uh, positional information model basically tells us that it's the gradient of uh, one or two or more morphogens that will define where the different structures will develop.
0: Oh, I remember this from from intro. So there's a lot up here. That's the front. There's not a lot of it back here. That's the back. That kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. So those are kind of the main ways we think about development and organizing inside the body or stripes and uh, polka dots on the surface. But something is going on with the snake scales that we're going to be talking about that might suggest a different thing is happening. Why, why did you think that something else might be going on? So we have a large
2: colony of corn snakes in our lab because we are mainly interested in the coloration of these animals. So there are different color morphs that are very spectacular. And we try to understand how these come about. We found actually some corn snakes that are scaleless. We didn't make them ourselves. So this is a spontaneous mutation that occurred in the pet trade. And we found these animals, and it was very intriguing because they had no dorsal scales, but they maintained the ventral scales. So we were thinking, okay, there's something special about these ventral scales.
0: These are something that people buy and sell and breed out there in snake collector or snake pet world. You can get a scaleless corn snake that doesn't have any scales on its back. It's all kind of skin, and then it has belly scales. And so you said, oh, well, why... Why are they only developing belly scales and not back scales? Exactly.
2: exactly. Okay. So that was the initial uh, question. Yes. Okay.
0: Then you went to look for the gene that might be perturbed in this, in this scaleless model.
2: Exactly. So we started breeding these animals ourselves, and we did the genomic mapping, which allowed us to identify the interval on the genome where the mutation is probably located. And then we went in the interval and checked for whatever snips and deletions that we can find. And we found a deletion in a gene, which is uh, called idar And it's known to be uh, very important for the development of skin appendages. Mm -hmm.
0: So for skin appendages here, what you mean is like feathers or scales or fur?
2: Exactly, so it's actually part of the EDA pathway, which is very well known to uh, affect the development of hair, of feather, of scales in fish, but also scales in other reptiles. We have previously shown that there are scaleless bearded dragons. So these are lizards, again, that people keep at home as pets that uh, lack all of their scales. And in this case, it's the EDA gene of the same pathway that is mutated.
0: Mm-hmm. But for some reason, the corn snakes were holding on to their ventral scales, their belly scales.
2: That was what intrigued us a lot because we knew from the bearded dragon that if you perturbed EDA, normally you should lose all your scales. But these animals, they had the etherat, which is downstream of EDA, which was mutated, and they were keeping the ventral scales. So the question was, why does this happen?
0: So how did you tease apart that? Those relationships between those genes, the mutation, and the scales.
2: We actually did in situ hybridization to see exactly where is the expression of these genes on the developing embryo. And what was very intriguing was to see that the expression on the ventral side was coinciding every time with somitic structures, with the epaxial part of somitic structure, meaning the part which is towards the belly.
0: What does somitic mean?
2: The somite actually are the repetitive elements that we have along the body axis of the animal. And these are structures that will give the vertebrae, the ribs and the muscles and some other structures, of course, but these are the most important ones.
0: So kind of repetitive building blocks that develop into these units that build the that part of the body.
2: Exactly, and we have them as well. Obviously, our vertebrae column is formed by somites.
0: Okay, so what you're noticing then is that the belly scales are linked with somite. So almost a little bit more positional than, than anything else, right? Exactly. One thing that really struck me about this paper is that you actually made a transgenic snake, uh, which is not not an easy feat.
2: No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, so we based ourselves in the work that was previously done on Anolis uh, lizards, but we obviously had to adapt it because the Anolis lizards are just very small, And the reproduction cycle is very different. And we had a snake of 1.2 meters (laughs) to deal with uh, (laughs) who are seasonal breeders. So we really had to find the right moment in the whole year where we can actually find the follicles that will develop to give eventually the eggs and to inject uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 mix in these follicles.
0: Wow. So you had to wait for when they're about ready to breed and, or even before that, before the eggs are developed.
2: Exactly. So we had to find the right moment during the year where we can do this operation.
0: And then once the, um, the breeding happened and you had introduced this mutation, what did you see?
2: What we did is actually we wanted to uh, disrupt the edder ad the same way that it's disrupted in the spontaneously occurring uh, mutants and uh, we were very amazed to see that when we did that we had little uh, hatchlings or little snakes that came out of the eggs and they were scaleless exactly the same way meaning that they didn't have any dorsal scales but they did have the ventral one. Mm
0: -hmm. So you're able to confirm with this work that this gene is disrupted and only this gene and that is causing this change in the production of scales So now what? (laughs) What do you do to figure out what's going on with ventral scales? How are those being developed if they're not depending on this other system?
2: We are working on that. Some other studies that um, are also on other species that interest us because we would like to see if this is a phenomenon that is more widespread and it's not specific uh, to snakes.
0: Yeah. Why do you think that there are these different pathways for the development of the scales on the back and the sides versus the scales on the belly of the snake?
2: I think what is important for the snakes is to align very well the ventral scales with the muscles and the ribs because that will help them moving, right? The, the way that they crawl around. So I think evolutionary speaking, the first thing that probably happened was this alignment of the somitic structure with the ventral scale. We still have to find which, with which mechanism it happens. And then what happened is that the dorsal scales, they anyway self-organize, but now they don't self-organize independently. They have a pre-pattern as we call it. They have the location of the ventral scales that will tell them where to form.
0: We talked about how this is a transgenic snake model that you're working with here. You know, Do you see this as being useful for some of the other work you're doing or maybe for other labs that are studying snakes?
2: So this is something very new, especially for our work, it will be very important because we will continue, obviously, to uh, try to understand better the development of these ventral scales and the possibility of disrupting genes, the expression of genes will be very helpful to better understand what's going on. But also for the work that we are doing on the coloration of snakes, it will be uh, uh, very interesting to see what we can
0: create. Yeah. Thank you so much, Athanasia.
2: Thank you very much, Sarah.
0: Athanasia Tika is a senior lecturer in the genetics and evolution department at the University of Geneva. You can find a link to the science advances paper we discussed at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's A A-A-A-S A join